The kakadu plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. I was blown away because I'm like, why would his fingerprint be in the vehicle? Why would that not have been something that had been investigated? When police captain Cinda Williams ran the prints that had been found in Michelle Schofield's car 17 years ago, she wasn't expecting anything. But there was a hit. So I ran a criminal history check on Jeremy Scott. Now... Cinda wasn't really supposed to have run these prints. The Michelle Schofield case is under Polk County's jurisdiction, not Hendry County, where she works. But because of her friendship with Chrissy, she decides to look into Jeremy Scott anyway. I felt like it was the right thing to do. And he had um, an extensive criminal history. And when I say extensive, I mean... Mostly violent crime. Charges of grand theft, burglary, multiple assaults, arson, and two arrests for murder. Holding the star To the one who 
Bone Valley. Chapter 5. Bam Bam. Who is Jeremy Scott? Who is this man whose fingerprints turned up in the car Michelle Schofield was driving on the night she was murdered? Kelsey and I wanted to find out everything we could about him. We started filing record requests. We got police reports from both the sheriff's office and the Lakeland Police Department. They documented dozens of Jeremy's arrests in Polk County. And we were also able to get our hands on Jeremy's psychiatric reports. He was evaluated by psychologists while awaiting trial on a homicide charge. This homicide charge, Jeremy would eventually be convicted for it. We'll get back to that later. But after he was found guilty, several of Jeremy's family members testified, pleading with the judge and jury to spare Jeremy's life, to sentence him to life in prison instead of giving him the death penalty. Their testimony about Jeremy's childhood and upbringing paints a Scott family portrait that can only be described as chaotic and unstable. We started compiling this testimony and other documents we've been able to dig up, and we were able to make a rough timeline of Jeremy's early life. Jeremy was born in Michigan on April 29, 1969, According to family testimony, his mother, Linda, immediately rejected him. When she brought him home from the hospital, Linda didn't want anything to do with him. She was 15 at the time and using drugs, so she left him with her parents. So Jeremy's grandparents, Earlene and Stacy Scott, they raise him, and Jeremy grows up calling them mom and dad. And they call him Bam Bam because he liked to hit stuff. But... Erlene works, and Stacy struggles with alcoholism, so Jeremy spends much of his early years in the care of his Aunt Debbie, who's just 14. Then, one day, when Jeremy was two or three, he was left without supervision and was hit by a neighbor's car. His psych reports say that there was significant injury to the right frontal area of his skull. It seems this incident may have left Jeremy with lasting brain damage. And soon after, Jeremy's uncle Tom moved in. Tom pretty severely abused Jeremy. He would beat him and call him names, according to his Aunt Debbie's testimony. When Jeremy starts school, sounds like he doesn't do very well. He has to repeat kindergarten, and he's placed in special education classes. And then we get to the mid to late 70s, and the family starts to relocate down to Florida. They were up in Michigan, and they start trickling down to various parts of the state. They settle in Perry, in the Florida Panhandle, and also in Central Florida. Lakeland, Kissimmee, Davenport, and Mulberry. It's hard to piece together exactly where Jeremy was and when, and who cared for him. He was being passed back and forth between different caregivers, different family members. But at some point, he ends up back with his mother, Linda. Jeremy's Aunt Debbie says that Linda was beating him with belts and with sticks, and the school he was attending at that time took notice. They reported the abuse. And it seems like at that point, Jeremy was removed from his mother's care and placed into foster care. 
After fourth grade, Jeremy stops regularly attending school. And by eighth grade, he's apparently dropped out of school entirely. Somewhere in that time, he starts getting in trouble with the law, too. The first arrest we have on record is August 1980. It was for petty theft, burglary, criminal mischief, dealing in stolen property, and unauthorized use of a motor vehicle. All misdemeanor charges, but he was only 11 years old. That's five charges. Around this same time, Jeremy's already living on the streets, and he asks his 16-year-old aunt for money, food, and clothes, which she isn't always able to provide. And then in January of 1982, he's arrested for grand theft and burglary. And those are felony charges. Jeremy was 12. And this is when things become a little more serious for him. There are some real repercussions. He's sent away to Okeechobee, the juvenile detention facility in South Florida. So he's in and out of Okeechobee between the ages of 13 and 15. After one of Jeremy's stays at Okeechobee, he lands in a little town in Polk County, just outside of Lakeland. It's called Eagle Lake. From Jeremy's criminal records and police reports, we learn about a murder that took place in this area in 1985, when Jeremy was just 15 years old. So we tried to track down some of the other people whose names we found in the documents. Okay, I'm out here. I'm about to meet with um, Nancy, and I think her mother, Wilma, is here. I'm just going to walk over there right now. They're uh, sitting on a picnic bench underneath a tree. Nancy and her mom, Wilma, are still living in the area where the crime took place. I called them after seeing Nancy's name in a witness deposition. I was especially interested in talking to them because they said they remembered Jeremy. Hello. You must be Wilma. Uh, We talked on the phone. Uh, Yes. Hi, I'm Nancy. Hi, Nancy. How are you? Nancy says she first met Jeremy while he was working the rides at the Florida Citrus Festival in nearby Winter Haven. Nancy was around 13 years old, and Jeremy was 15. Uh, We all went to the fair, and we'd go every single night. (laughs) What kind of fair was it? Uh, It was just a carnival. You had the sea dragon, you had the zipper, the one that spins around Himalaya. (laughs) What was Jeremy Scott doing there? He was actually running the sea dragon. And he, so he, when you were at the fair, like he would, he would be the guy that would put you on the rides. That was his job. No, he actually was the one that turned it on. It was doing the mechanical part. So he was basically a A carny. A carny. Nancy and her friends would see him every night over the ten days the festival was in town. So, so when, when me and the girls got on him, we got an extra ride. I'm like, hey, I got that extra ride. (laughs) (laughs) And when the festival eventually packs up, Jeremy sticks around the area. I think he just came into town and decided to stay for a little bit. He was quiet. I mean, uh, like shy, very shy compared to, like, the average kids. And, I mean, until he got to know you, you know. I do know he was, like, maybe slow. I don't know how to better explain it. He just was different, you know. I don't know if it's a disability or what, because back then... Nancy grew up with the sense that she should protect kids like Jeremy. So she would make sure to include him when she and her friends would play sports and hang around the park. Jeremy would stay over at their house some nights, too. He'd crash on the couch. 
he was polite because it was like he had respect, I guess, is the best way to say it. Yeah. Because I never saw temper out of him or anything. But then, Jeremy stops coming over to Nancy and Wilma's house as often. And Nancy starts seeing Jeremy with one of her neighbors, an ex-con by the name of Smokey Johnson. Smokey picks up Jeremy while he's hitchhiking one day. Smokey is 46, and Jeremy is just 15. Honestly, but I mean, it's really weird that somebody that much older would be hanging out with him, you know? That spring, on April 11th, 1985, Smokey's 75-year-old mother, Jewel Johnson, was found dead in a locked trailer behind her house. She lived right around the corner from where we lived. Right, and Jewel Johnson was just like a sweet elderly woman. I mean, everybody sort yes, of just Yes, I understand that she was a very sweet lady. Now, that's what I told by different people that I, I knew quite well. Yeah, that, uh, that she was a very sweet lady. Jewel Johnson suffered blunt force trauma to the head, and she was shot in the torso, presumably with the twenty-two caliber rifle found at the scene. Detective Richard Putnell the same detective that would work Michelle Schofield's murder two years later, conducts the investigation. Detective Putnell talks to Jewel Johnson's son, Smokey, who says that about $50 in rolled coins was taken from the house, as well as some large knives. As far as we can tell, there are no eyewitnesses to the killing, and no one claims to have heard any gunshots. But then... Detective Putnell interviews two teenage girls in the neighborhood, and the investigation takes a new direction. 13-year-old LaWanda Green and 15-year-old Ann Aldridge tell Detective Putnell that they know Jeremy, and they remember seeing him on his bike just hours after Jewel's murder. They say Jeremy had on all new clothes when they saw him. Gray jacket, gray shirt, gray pants, instead of his usual jeans and t-shirt. He also had a bunch of coins on him. He told them that his grandfather just died and left him $50. He showed the coins and said, this is all I have left. He had a red bag with him and said, there's a big knife in there. Not long after Jewel Johnson is killed, Jeremy stops by Nancy's place. He just swung by the house to tell us bye. Like, the conversation was really, really short. Uh, Not like where he was before that, you know, he laughed or whatever. It was just different. He just said that we wouldn't get to see him no more. He was staying away because he was in trouble. After I interview Nancy and Wilma at the ballpark, they tell me to follow their car and they'll point out Jewel Johnson's house. And this is really rural back here. A lot less houses, just little farmhouses, cattle. Yeah, there it is. I can see the little shed in the back, uh, under a tree. uh, That's where I think they found the body of Jewel Johnson. Investigators weren't able to lift any prints from the rifle found at the crime scene. Whoever shot Jewel Johnson must have wiped down the weapon afterwards. But they were able to lift fingerprints from a coin wrapper and Jewel's broken eyeglasses. 
the Polk County Sheriff's Office compares the prints to Jeremy's. It's a match. Jeremy Scott, now 16, becomes the lead suspect in the murder of Jewel Johnson. Three weeks after the killing, Jeremy's arrested and charged with first-degree murder. At his arraignment, the judge, who spent years presiding over juvenile cases, recognizes Jeremy's name. He tells reporters he wasn't surprised. He says, quote, This was one of those situations in which there was nothing the system could do. Jeremy was in jail, and he was a young man, very immature, very mentally, uh, I'm going to say mentally disturbed in the sense that he had a number of mental illnesses. He was a severely abused child. You know, he was cutting himself quite a bit in the jail. This is Austin Meslanik, who was an attorney with the Public Defender's Office. Meslanik was assigned to represent Jeremy in the murder of Jewel Johnson. I mean, the state was seeking the death penalty because this was before the United States Supreme Court had ruled that juveniles were not eligible for the death penalty. And, you know, in Polk County at that time, uh, the state went for the death penalty on just about every case. He was young. He was difficult. Sometimes he was cooperative. Sometimes he wasn't. This is Tony Maloney. She's the investigator from the Public Defender's Office. She was assigned to Leo Schofield's case in 1988 before Leo dropped them and hired Jack Edmond instead. But before all that, back in 1985, she was assigned to Jeremy Scott's defense in the Jewel Johnson murder. It was hard for him to stay on task for any period of time. And then even when he did, it was sort of like, you know, is he really connecting the dots here? Um, not out of touch with reality, but an inability to calmly control himself. At trial, the state presents a pretty simple case. They say that while Smokey Johnson is at work, Jewel catches Jeremy trying to steal her rolls of coins. She tells Jeremy she's calling the sheriff, so he hits her over the head and shoots her with a rifle. But the public defenders did witness interviews and brought in a mental health expert to defend Jeremy at trial. And you put on a pretty aggressive defense. Yes, we did. Jeremy takes the stand at trial and says that it was Smokey Johnson who killed his own mother. Jeremy says he was a witness to the killing. He said it happened after Smokey and Jewel argued about smoking weed. Several jurors said that they didn't think Jeremy killed Jewel Johnson because he didn't seem intelligent enough to remove his fingerprints from the murder weapon. Smokey, on the other hand, had done some time for selling weed, and he apparently didn't come across too well at trial. That's how, in September 1985, Jeremy Scott is acquitted of Jewel Johnson's murder. The state never prosecutes Smokey because of the strength of his alibi. Multiple co-workers testify that he was at work at the time his mother was murdered. Jewel Johnson's murder is still considered unsolved to this day. But the state of Florida didn't seem too happy about Jeremy's acquittal, so they weren't so quick to release him. While Jeremy was in the jail awaiting trial, he'd lit his mattress on fire. 
So after he's acquitted in the Jewel Johnson murder, he's held in the Polk County Jail for the arson charge that happened months before. To me and Kelsey, though, it seems like Jeremy literally got away with murder. I think that son of a bitch ruined a bunch of people's lives. This is Lee Underwood. We reached out to him because he was a close friend of Michelle Schofield's back in the day. She was a very, very, very special friend of mine, like a sister. It was Michelle who gave him his nickname, Lee the Flea. And she named me that. Uh, Basically, because I was always fleeing to elude the police. (laughs) And that name has stuck with me till today. We tracked Lee the Flea down in Wisconsin, and as we were talking, the interview took an unexpected turn. You didn't know Jeremy Scott, did you? I was in jail with him back in 83. We checked this, and Lee is a little off on the year. Based on arrest records, the cops finally caught up with Lee in 1985. They locked him up in the Polk County Jail on charges of, well, fleeing police. And Lee tells us one of his cellmates then was Jeremy Scott. Lee was there when Jeremy set his mattress on fire, and he remembers when Jeremy was acquitted of killing Jewel Johnson. I don't know how he got off of it. He had bragged to everybody in the cell about doing it. This guy was crazy. He'd like make a a shank, like a, a jail knife out of a razor, run around the jail, cutting people just at random. This kid was crazy. And he had a look in his eye just like like he wasn't right. Jeremy is convicted on the arson charge and shipped off to state prison. By the time he's released, it's December 1986. Leo and Michelle Schofield have been married for about four months. They're living in the little trailer near Cumbie Settlement. They're going to church, Leo's playing music, and Michelle has yet to start her job at Tom's Restaurant. Jeremy Scott is back on the streets, and this time, he's in Lakeland. Hi, I'm Jason Flom, CEO and founder of Lava for Good Podcasts, home to Bone Valley, Wrongful Conviction, The War on Drugs, and many other great podcasts. Today, we're asking you, our listeners, to take part in a survey. Your feedback is going to help inform how we make podcasts in the future. Your complete and candid answers will help us continue to bring you more insightful and inspiring stories about important topics that impact us all. So please, go to lavaforgood.com survey and participate today. Thank you for your support. Bone Valley is sponsored by Stand Together. Stand Together is a philanthropic community that partners with America's boldest changemakers to tackle the root causes of our country's biggest problems, including the broken criminal justice system. Weldon Angelos is one of those changemakers. At the age of 23, Weldon was arrested for a first-time offense of selling weed to a confidential informant. At the time, he was a budding musician, 
spending time with artists like Tupac, Snoop Dogg, Pink, and Nas. His entire life was ahead of him when he was sentenced to a mandatory 55 years in federal prison without the possibility of early release. After serving 13 years, a bipartisan effort led to him getting officially pardoned. Upon his release, he founded the Weldon Project, a nonprofit working to create better outcomes for those still in prison that funds social change and provides financial aid for all those who are still serving time for cannabis-related offenses. Weldon Angelos is one of the many entrepreneurs partnering with Stand Together to drive solutions in education, healthcare, poverty, and criminal justice. To learn more about the War on Drugs, listen to the War on Drugs podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's see. Um, this is just kind of describing Lakeland, how it all came to be. <laughs> We're at Heidi Zeman's house looking through boxes. Heidi, her sister Wendy, and their parents were living in Lakeland when Jeremy Scott entered their lives. Heidi's parents were professors. Her dad taught Greek and her mom taught English. And for a while in the 1980s, they took in local teenagers they called throwaway kids who'd been kicked out or were living on the streets. The Zemans offered them a place to stay. My dad was, you know, he was, he was a writer. He just wrote, 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 wrote. So when, uh, when he passed away, there were just boxes and boxes of writing. So as I was pulling everything out, I was trying to decide, you know, what was what. And I came across this, and I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, this is the story of all the kids. So it was pretty neat. And then I found Mom's notebook, and I was like, oh, this is really cool that they both wrote the kids' stories. The Zemans first started taking in kids living on the street when Heidi's sister, Wendy, started dating a boy named Mike Jason. Yeah, I've been on the streets when I was 14 because okay. my brother and I got, didn't get along. So, you know, I just felt like I was the black sheep of the family. So I left. <laughs> I was scared I was going to die, honestly, living on the streets. Didn't know where you're going to eat. Um, you wore the same clothes all the time. And uh, it was struggle. Heidi and Wendy's parents let Mike live with them. And then they start letting some of Mike's friends, who also had nowhere else to go, into their house. And then before you knew it, it was like, you know, there were so many kids. And they they just... They would sleep wherever they could fit at the Zeman's house. In the garage, on couches, or on the living room floor. When they ran out of floor space and couch space, someone might sleep on the recliner. And then I kind of became part of the family. Rob Morales was one of the teens staying at the Zeman house. Rob also went by spot because he had this one patch of white on a head full of black hair. So I slept on the couch uh, because I didn't have any place to go. Well, that's where I met Jeremy. It's the summer of 1988 the summer that Leo Schofield is arrested and charged with the murder of his wife, Michelle. Jeremy Scott, homeless, finds his way into the Zeman house in Lakeland. He's 19 years old now, but he's already had a couple of stints in state prison. Spot describes Jeremy as impulsive and violent. Usually every time you know we met up, we were either getting into a fight with someone else or, uh, you know, he was always the first to... Uh, 
jumped the gun. He made me nervous. This is Tracy Slaughter. That summer, 1988, she's 16. She's dating Spot, and she and Wendy Zeman are almost inseparable. That was the the Def Leppard summer, and you walk around with your gray boombox and you keep flipping it back and forth. Wendy and I would walk, and we would walk, and we would walk, we would walk everywhere. And you had to have your your buka shell necklace on, and you had to have your your black leather, like a stretchy leotard type pants that had looked like they were satiny looking, you know? And then some type of bright tangerine top or something like that. That was that summer, and I associate all of that with, with this. This is a summer Tracy would never forget. As Tracy's hanging out at the Zeman house, she sees Jeremy coming and going with his friend Cheryl. Cheryl is about 10 years older than Tracy, and she has a car. One night, Cheryl takes Tracy and Wendy Zeman out for a ride. So we went and she bought a bottle of Seagram 7. Don't drink it to this day. Then Cheryl says, we need to go pick up Jeremy. And that's what they do. I knew that I didn't want him to be there. That's all. That was just my feeling. Um, Because then Cheryl also let him drive. And we thought that was odd because she relinquished her vehicle over to him. And I remember when we stopped at the convenience store to buy the second bottle of Seagram 7. Oh boy. Yeah. Jeremy drops off Wendy and Cheryl at the Zeman house. He drives off with Tracy for coffee to sober her up before taking her home. And then it all just went to hell from there. Tracy tells me that instead of taking her home, Jeremy drives her to a wooded area off a two-lane road. It's dark. There aren't any streetlights and very little traffic. She doesn't go into detail, but she makes it clear that Jeremy sexually assaulted her that night. She says she can remember laying in the sand on the side of the road and hearing a car drive by without stopping. I was 16 years old. And then that was my welcome into the world. Around the same time, Heidi Zeman starts noticing that her sister Wendy is not really acting like herself. It it was obvious there was something wrong. One day, Jeremy's in the house, and the Zemans hear Wendy scream. He walked in on her one day in the shower, and she ripped the shower curtain off and started screaming. And so, you know, we kind of knew that was such a violent reaction that she had to him. You know, you could tell something had happened. Wendy tells her mom that not long before the shower incident, Jeremy had raped her. Jeremy didn't want to be thrown out of the house, so he tried to keep Wendy quiet. From my understanding, he told her that if she if she told anybody or if she did anything, he would kill her. And so I think she was just terrified. 14-year-old girl. The Zemans do kick Jeremy out of the house, and now they're left to figure out what to do next. They're devastated about what Jeremy did to Wendy. But the Zemans, as a family, basically decide that they were not going to report Jeremy's sexual assault. They just didn't want to expose their 14-year-old daughter to an investigation 
in a trial. And Wendy Zeman wouldn't seem to recover from the trauma that happened so early in her life. What did she do afterwards? She never did anything after that. She never went back to school. She was never able to hold in a job. She got to the point where she didn't want to leave the house. I mean, she was just so paranoid about everything and everybody, and, um, and it just got worse through the years. And then there's Tracy. If I say that something I did today was because of him, I'm allowing him to control my life, and I'm allowing him to attack me and be ugly to me every single time that I allow him to take part of my life. I'm not giving him. He's gotten all from me he's ever getting from me. After Jeremy sexually assaulted her, she stopped talking to her best friend Wendy and stopped going to the Zeman's house. She just wanted to move on. Tracy still lives in Polk County. She's got her own children now, and I got the impression that she's happily married and doing well. Her friend Wendy Zeman wasn't so lucky. Her mental and physical health continued to decline, and she died of heart failure in 2015 at the age of 41. Tracy had no idea that Wendy had her own traumatic experience with Jeremy Scott. We were the ones to break the news to her more than three decades later. I felt bad after you told me that Wendy had passed and stuff like that. I was like, maybe I should have continued being her friend. I didn't know that he affected her, and she didn't know he affected me. So, you know what I mean? So I kind of felt, I still kind of feel like shit, but... There's nothing I can do about it. It is what it is at this point, so. The Zemans had their hearts in the right place. According to their youngest daughter, Heidi, her parents did make a difference in the lives of some of the kids. Like Spot, who had a successful military career and returned to Lakeland to thank Mr. and Mrs. Zeman for all their help. But some of the throwaway kids that went through the Zeman house weren't as lucky as Spot. Many of the boys ended up dead or in prison. And the Zeman's older daughter, Wendy, paid the price for her parents' good intentions. Mr. Zeman died a year after his daughter, Wendy. His younger daughter, Heidi, went through his possessions, and she came across all of his papers and writing, as well as the journal he was keeping back in the 1980s. So he starts off with the kids who passed away. Wow. Yeah. Um... So he starts off with Harry, um, which he was so attached to Harry. So uh, Aaron, Louis. Mr. and Mrs. Zeman tried to keep track of them all, to record some details about each life. To them, they weren't throwaways. They were children who had fallen through the cracks. And then this is the part, like I said, that talks about uh, Jeremy. When he talks about Jeremy, he even says, I'm not going to give him his own story because I'm not going to give him the satisfaction of giving him his own story because of what he did. In his journal, Mr. Zeman acknowledges Jeremy's troubled life. But he also goes on to say that Jeremy, upset about being kicked out of the house, cut the brakes on Mrs. Zeman's car. But, Mr. Zeman writes, that murder attempt was not successful.
After Jeremy Scott left so much destruction in his wake, he took off with another boy who was living at the Zemans. His name is Larry Brian Hall, but he goes by Brian. For a little while, Brian moves into a small place with Wendy's ex-boyfriend, Mike. Jeremy and him were always going off in the evenings at nighttime when Brian stayed at my place. Mike seems concerned because he knew Brian could easily get caught up with the wrong people, like Jeremy. He was trying to figure out how to survive, and he followed people. I just think he didn't know any better. He would just do whatever somebody said to do. You know, that was one of the things Brian told me. He said he was scared of him. Brian eventually moves out of Mike's apartment and goes off with Jeremy. But Jeremy and Brian have nowhere to live. They're staying wherever they can, sometimes in abandoned buildings. They start breaking into houses together. Spot's still in the area, too. And he hears that Jeremy and Brian are hanging out in downtown Lakeland at night, around Lake Morton. Okay, well, Lake Morton used to be a... uh Oh, I gotta put this. Uh, a gay pickup zone. Oh, okay. So, in other words, uh, I hate to get graphic. It's okay, it's okay. <laughs> so, basically, at that time, what would happen was anybody that was looking to get money, uh, you would hang out at the lake at night, and then uh, somebody would drive around the lake, and if they flashed their lights, that meant that they were looking, and then you would flash your lights which meant that, yes, you were available. So they would do whatever they wanted, you know, and then they'd pay you 40 or 50 bucks. And then if you stayed out there long enough, you know, you can get, uh, you know, three or four people a night. So he was kind of a hustler? Yes. According to Spot, Jeremy was targeting gay men. Usually he'd rob them. And these men were not likely to contact law enforcement. Not if they had to explain to police why they were cruising around Lake Morton. This is what Jeremy and Brian were up to on Halloween night, 1988. It's about 3 a.m., and they're hanging out by the lake. Jeremy's been drinking, and they call a middle-aged gay man named Donald Moorhead. Jeremy's been with him before, and Donald drives over to pick the two teenagers up in his Chevy Beretta. He brings Brian and Jeremy back to his trailer in Lakeland. They're drinking and smoking, and Donald ends up falling asleep naked in a rocking chair. But the robbery, uh, everything just uh, happened in such a, even after all these years, still uh, uncomfortable to even talk about. Here's Brian Hall. He's serving a life sentence at Hardy Correctional Institution. He's thin, with sunken eyes, and graying hair. He tells us what happened in the trailer with Jeremy. He uh, waited till uh, Don was asleep and uh, was looking for money and, and things in the in the house or the trailer. And then um, the last thing I was expecting was that uh, he was going to kill him. Brian didn't go into great detail, but according to the testimony he gave in court, here's what happened. Jeremy woke Brian up early in the morning on November 1st. He was searching Donald's trailer for cash. Jeremy tells Brian that they'll need to kill Donald so he doesn't turn them in. 
And then, Jeremy picks up a glass bottle of grape juice and repeatedly hits Donald over the head with it. Donald slumps out of the rocking chair, but is making some gurgling noises. So, Jeremy strangles him with a telephone cord. Jeremy then wipes down the grape juice bottle and places it back in the fridge. Brian Hall is the only person we know of who actually saw Jeremy Scott kill someone. And he did it in such a way that this seemed like uh, like you had swallowed a fly. Just just didn't seem to have any concern or conscience on it. What were you thinking while you were sitting there and watching this happen? It was uh, just like an out of bo- out of body experience. I was uh, just in in fear of of seeing something that you didn't think someone was capable of doing. It was just a, a side of him that I didn't see. Sometimes you find out more and more as time goes on about people that you never knew. Uh, you never knew them like you thought you knew them. After killing Donald, Brian and Jeremy steal his Chevy. They take off to a town called Davenport, about 30 miles east in Polk County. Jeremy's mother and stepfather lived there, and his brother lived close by. But when a police helicopter starts circling over the neighborhood, Jeremy runs off into the woods. Deputies are in pursuit now, and Jeremy surrenders. He leads them to his mom's trailer, where Brian is sleeping. The two teenagers are arrested and taken into custody in early November of 1988. By this time, Leo Schofield is sitting in the Polk County Jail, awaiting trial. The same prosecutor in Leo's case is assigned to prosecute Jeremy Scott and Brian Hall. The man with the electric chair tie clip, Assistant State Attorney John Aguero. Aguero offers Brian a deal. He says he'll take the death penalty off the table if Brian testifies to what he saw Jeremy do. Brian takes the deal. He's sentenced to life in prison and testifies against Jeremy. The jury recommends life in prison for Jeremy, but Aguero convinces the judge to override the jury's recommendation. The judge agrees, and Jeremy Scott is sentenced to death. A reporter for the Tampa Tribune is sitting in the courtroom, watching Jeremy as the sentence is read. She writes that she sees Jeremy, who is handcuffed, with his legs shackled, glance back at his crying grandmother. As Jeremy is led away, he too begins to cry. Smokey Johnson was also in the courtroom during sentencing. Smokey is convinced Jeremy got away with killing his mother, Jewel Johnson, four years prior. So he shows up at Jeremy's hearing for satisfaction, he says. Smokey tells the reporter, what goes around comes around. A few years later, the Florida Supreme Court overturns Jeremy's death sentence, citing factors such as his borderline intelligence, emotional instability, and a childhood rife with abuse. So at 23 years old, Jeremy comes off death row and begins serving a life sentence for the murder of Donald Moorhead. Without any possibility for parole, 
Jeremy Scott is now locked up for good. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. So I picked up the telephone and I contacted Polk County Sheriff's Office. It's 2004. Jeremy and Leo have both been serving more than 15 years in prison when Cinda Williams finds out the fingerprints in Michelle Schofield's car match Jeremy Scott. Cinda sees Jeremy's rap sheet. Theft, assault, arson, vagrancy, burglary. The list goes on topped off by two first-degree murders, acquitted of one, convicted of the other. And so I spoke to a sergeant, and I told him, listen, this is something that has come to light here. I understand it is not, you know, our jurisdiction or our investigation, but I need to give you this information because I feel it's important. This print was run. 
it came back to an individual named Jeremy Scott. I think you guys need to probably look at this. I don't know if you've ever looked at it before, but here's the information. Then she calls Leo's wife, Chrissy. I, I couldn't believe it. I was expecting a tow truck driver, and instead they match a killer. Realistically, what would the case look like had the state known it at the time? Scott Cup hears the news from his wife Cinda that night, and he's thinking, from a legal perspective, that Leo would never be in prison if these prints in Michelle Schofield's Mazda had been properly investigated back in 1987. This prosecutor, this police agency, they knew all too well about who Jeremy Scott was. And if part of their initial investigation was the identity of those prints to Jeremy Scott, that's where the investigation would have gone. I mean, Aguero was a good prosecutor. I mean, he, he, he convicted Leo with nothing. Imagine what he could have done with Jeremy Scott. After getting a match on the fingerprints, there's a celebratory dinner. That's what Chrissy's up to when she gets a call from Leo. She doesn't want to tell him anything on the phone, though. She's going to visit him in the morning. She wants to tell him in person. So instead, she hands the phone over to Scott Cup. Cup had been trying to stay out of Leo's case. He'd only agreed to represent Chrissy. But now, he sees that there's evidence someone else may have killed Michelle. Until this moment, Leo and Cup had never spoken before. And now, Cup can't hide his excitement. He says to me, I'm going to get you out of there in 90 days, buddy. My wife was giddy, he was giddy, and uh, this, is, this is my honest feeling. I'm aggravated to shit. I'm like, you gotta fucking be kidding me. You know, he sounds half-lit. I'm in a prison, and my emotions are, are now exploding. The next morning, Chrissy comes to the prison and meets with Leo in the visitation room. So I sit down and I say, we have a match on the fingerprints and give him a name. And at the time, I didn't realize how difficult that was going to be for him. It was very painful. Um, His first reaction was to put his head down and cry. I've had this mantle of a murderer on my shoulders for all these years. You know, and to come out and, and, and say, we got the guy, he's, we got him, he's forensically linked, we know who it is, we, he's a murderer and all this other stuff. And I'm saying, that's the guy who murdered my wife. You know what I mean? So there was so much. It just, it was an explosion of stuff. And I, I got, I was, I was mad. <laughs> you know, I was really mad. And it took me some days to, um, to get control of that. When Cinda notifies the Polk County Sheriff's Office about the prints, a new investigation into Jeremy Scott is opened. Two cold case detectives from the Polk County Sheriff's Office are sent to interview Jeremy in prison. They tell him that his prints were found inside the car of Michelle Schofield, who was murdered 18 years ago. They ask Jeremy what he knows. Jeremy says he doesn't know anything about a murder. 
but if his fingerprints are in the car, maybe he'd broken into it. He tells them he must have stolen a half dozen car stereos while he was living on the streets. But he's clearly shaken. Soon after the detectives leave, Jeremy calls the only person he's in contact with outside of prison, his grandmother, Erlene. And this call is recorded by the Florida Department of Corrections. Grandma. Huh? Listen, I want you to listen carefully, all right? All right, I'm listening. Has anybody come talk to you? About what? Murder. Murder? A murder. Who got murdered? Some, some girl back in 87. 87? Remember when we lived on Cumbie Road? Yeah. They said they, they found the girl's body in the lake. Lord. Right. Well, right. just tell them you don't know nothing and you ain't seen nothing, heard nothing, and just leave you alone. Well, they're coming back, Grandma. Well, just tell them you don't know nothing. But they done, they told me they'll be back, Grandma. They ain't got no proof on They got a palm print in her house. Uh-huh. It could have been anybody's, too. Right. Well, see, that's why I need... Them damn cops, all they do is frame people. Oh, Lord, they, they're plumb stupid. I hate goddamn cops. Son of a bitches. I hate them. Well, Grandma, they they coming to get me. Bone Valley is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1. Our executive producers are Jason Flom and Kevin Wordis. Kara Kornhaber is our senior producer. Britt Spangler is our sound designer. Roxandra Guidi is our editor. Fact-checking by Maximo Anderson. Our producer and researcher is Kelsey Decker. Our theme song, The One Who's Holding the Stars, is performed by Lee Bob and the Truth. It was written by Leo Schofield and Kevin Herrick in Florida's Hardy Correctional Institution. Bone Valley is written and produced by me, Gilbert King. You can follow the show on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Lava for Good. To see photos and documents from our investigation and exclusive behind-the-scenes content, visit lavaforgood.com slash bonevalley. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A Redwood Forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? 
Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.